Today on the show, are Christian workers called to stay faithful to the old ways or innovate new methods? You know, I think in some ways we've adopted a inappropriate and I would call it worldly view of culture. Culture is not a sanctified entity. And sometimes missionaries have been so beat up because they've been accused of cultural imperialism that they lose sight of the fact that there are things in that culture that are not redemptive, that are opposed to the gospel, and that I'm sorry, but, you know, we need to challenge them. Jesus did it in his day. You know, he, he took the leading cultural figures were the Pharisees, and he took them on. A lively discussion with Missio Nexus President Ted Esler. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communication with ABWE, joined by my good friend, Scott Dunford, West Coast Advancement Coordinator, Pastor of Redeemer Church in the land of Fremont, California. And uh, it's exciting to be back here together, Scott. We're grateful for you for joining us um, for another episode, all to you who are listening. Uh, at the time we're recording this, there's about to be a large contingent from our offices here heading down to Dallas um, for a conference, networking with a lot of mission leaders um, at with, with an organization called Missio Nexus. And uh, they've got a lot of interesting and exciting and new and sometimes controversial ideas and things worth engaging about. And so the guest that we're going to be interviewing today has a lot to say about those sorts of things. And so we're excited to introduce him in just a moment. Uh, but first, Scott, how are things in your world? You know, uh, things are going pretty good. It's exciting to see people come to Christ and um, just the the normal everyday, probably not super innovational <laughs> ministry that we're doing here in California. Um, but uh, I also have a crisis that people can be praying for me about. I hate to even bring this up. My wife would probably cringe, but I don't think she listens to the show. But so in California, That's okay. Mine doesn't either. In California, there is a... It's a, it's the it's it's almost paradise here. It really is. Um, people always tell me they're sorry for me living in California, and I just kind of chuckle to myself because it's pretty great. Um, but uh, there's something we have called the roof rats, and uh, because of all the fruit, they they eat the fruit, but then they go into the they try to like nest in your attic. They don't really want to come into your house, but they get there. Well, we have a construction project going on, and the and someone left one of the builders left a hole in the wall and now i've got a problem in one part of my house and it is not fun so i'm losing sleep over it catching them and uh, it's about the grossest thing i've ever done but you know many of our listeners who are listening i just read uh i just read um uh, a sweet obituary i can't remember the the missionary lady's name who had lived and served in png for a long time with with cliff bible translators and told the story of you know cockroaches all over her walls and and rats in the ceiling. I'm like, you know what? I, I, I can suffer for Jesus in this very small way. Um, but anyway, yeah, kind of gross. Probably didn't want to know about that, did you, Alex? That was way more information than I planned on um, hearing. <laughs> and um, it makes it a little bit weird now to ask people to also rate, review, subscribe <laughs> to the show, <laughs> and consider supporting us at missionspodcast.com slash support. However, I'm not sure if we really uh, set up the pitch as well, but um, hey, life happens. And I think one of the things that's fun that makes a kind of the secret sauce of this show is that, you know, you and I have some relationship. We talk about life. We talk about ministry. We don't just dive right into the interview, but um, <laughs> sorry to hear that, Scott. Um, yeah. I will say our guest who's waiting online has been very gracious with us. And Scott, would you please introduce him for us? 
Well, we are excited to have Ted Esler. He's the president of, uh, of Missio Nexus, and he's also the author of a, of a new book that just came out called The Innovation Crisis by Moody Publishers. And so uh, welcome to our show. It's really good to have you, Ted. Hey, thanks for having me. And um, I'm excited to be on here despite the roof rats. <laughs> Thank you. So Ted, is, it, uh, is it roof rats or root rats? No, they're in the roof. They go into the roof. Yeah, they like to stay yeah, out attic. here um, in in Pennsylvania. Some people would say rough rats. Um, yeah, they're that too. <laughs> right, right. They're that too. So, Ted, tell us about yourself and how God led you into global missions. Let's talk about missions now. Maybe that would be a good good thing to talk <laughs> about on a missions podcast. Good idea. Well, um, I was a computer consultant in Minneapolis back in the mid to late 80s. And uh, one morning, went to church and and I, I call him an old timey missionary was a speaker. And I had never been exposed to the world of missions before. And it blew me away that there were even missionaries around. I was so interested. We set up a lunch with him and uh, it was intriguing to my wife and I. So we uh, Talked to our mission pastor about it, and he said, well, if you're interested in missions, the first step is to take the perspectives course at our church. So take that course. And in 1988, if you took the perspectives course in Minneapolis, you've got you got this unknown Baptist pastor <laughs> on the first night named John Piper. Heard of him. And he talked about the story of his glory, the, the mission story from Genesis through Revelation. And we were just hooked and amazed to see how there's such unity in the scriptures and it all revolves around God's redemptive plan for all peoples. And so we started to uh, track in that direction. I went through some training and we ended up working in the Balkans during the 1990s when all those wars were going on in the Balkans. And then after that, I had a couple of different uh, ministry leadership roles and uh, we served with an agency called Pioneers and uh, so that moved us to Florida, eventually, where I live now. And about six years ago, I was uh, invited to take on this role as president of Missio Nexus. So that's been my journey. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, when, when we were serving overseas, we had so many great partners uh, with Pioneers and loved our, our relationships there. What a great organization and thankful for your role now. So tell us a little bit about Missio Nexus. For those who maybe don't know, it's probably pastors and even missionaries who are listening that don't even know what that is and 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 what that might be about. So what is Missio Nexus and what role do you see it playing in the furthering of the Great Commission? Yeah, I think the easiest way for you know, somebody to understand Missio Nexus is we're an association. So if you think about wherever you live, there's probably a real estate association. Or you may have heard of the Tire Manufacturers Association, etc. These are formed typically in in the commercial setting to protect the interests of that industry and to promote that industry. And the great thing about Missio Nexus as an association is rather than being an association of competitors, we are an association of cooperators. Uh, We all work together to try to see the Great Commission fulfilled. And so I get to lead this uh, incredible uh, network. It's about 350 mission agencies Uh, representing just under 60,000 globally placed workers all around the world. And our mission is to catalyze relationships, ideas, 
and collaboration within the Great Commission community. We also have lots of church members. Uh, if you're a globally focused church, uh, you would enjoy being a member of Missio Nexus. Uh, we do all sorts of events and we have publications, uh, all sorts of things to try to encourage the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So of all the topics to address in the missions world, um, all sorts of controversies over things like CPM and DMM, which I don't think we're going to get a ton into today, but you know, it's these titillating topics of conversation, right? Of all the things that you could possibly address, innovation in your latest book, Ted, The Innovation Crisis. Why talk about innovation? Well, I talk about innovation for a couple of reasons. First of all, I would just say that in my role as an association leader, people will often, especially leaders of organizations, they'll ask me, you know, what other organizations are really making an impact? Who should we be looking to, to understand uh, what's happening in the Global Great Commission that we might learn from? And often they're asking, who's, who are the biggest innovators? And after being asked that question many times, I realized that my list of innovative mission agencies was very short. And I began to think about, you know, why is that? Why do we have this sense that, uh, you know, if you, a lot of people in the broader church, they would say that missions is kind of a uh, bygone concept. There's been a lot of deconstruction of the Great Commission. It's been lumped in with colonialism. And uh, just we could get into all sorts of uh, avenues talking about how there's a, there's a feeling out there that missions is a past generation's effort, not the contemporary, uh, you know, thing that we should be thinking about in the church. Right. So that, that that's one whole thing I would say is there is this idea out there that missions is old fashioned. And uh, the second thing I would point to is, you know, we are supposed to be followers of Jesus. And whether you like to use the word innovation for Jesus or not, he was innovative. Start, start unpacking the language of the Gospels, and what you find is lots of talk about things that are new. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. There's a new covenant, you know. Don't put old wine into new wineskins. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, new wine into old wineskins. It goes on and on. All of the newness that Jesus introduced. And if you look at the response of people around him, many of them were stunned by the framing of new ways of thinking about their spirituality. You know, he ushered in a new kingdom. Uh, if you were in the first century, and you were a Jew in Jerusalem, and somebody said, hey, you know, where's innovation happening in Judaism today? I can't imagine they wouldn't say, man, you got to be listening to this guy named Jesus. Every time he opens his mouth, people are almost hiding because he's going to say something new and challenging that we've never heard before. At one point, his disciples said to him, why do you got to say these hard things? Uh, we, we can't hardly take it anymore. And so the author and perfecter of our faith was highly innovative. And um, even if you look at the first century, until the government got its hands on the church, I would say we had tons and tons of innovation going on in terms of how we were approaching the Great Commission. So I think you got the contemporary situation that uh, the missions world finds itself in. And then also you have the biblical side 
in which we see Jesus modeling innovation in his ministry. And hey, we're supposed to be his followers and we're supposed to copy what he did. So, you know, as Alex and I were talking about this ahead of time, you know, certain thoughts, you know, were coming to our mind and and just wanting to put some of those out there and let you kind of interact interact with those. Um, you know, it's clear that you see both in the title, but also throughout the book and the content of the book, it's clear that you see a lack of innovation as a real crisis in the church, but also in 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 um, in in the missions world. And you highlight, like you said, Jesus as an innovator, the reformers as an innovator, and then you're getting into a lot with William Carey, who's one of my heroes, and probably half of our listeners would put him as one of their missions heroes um, up there. But a, a question for you is: I, one, I wonder, uh, even as you're talking about Jesus, how many of those that you listed would even consider themselves innovators? Like when I read the reformers, I get, I kind of get the sense, and even William Carey, that they didn't really see themselves as innovators as much as they saw themselves as recovering something that was lost. I, I, I think that to the to the reformers. They looked at the changes in the in the church of their age and saw those innovations, you know, um, the indulgences and, and some of the, the 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 things that were being added, uh, you know, around about around the cult of Mary and other things like that as innovations, and that they saw themselves as really recovering or restoring what was lost. So the question for you, in kind of coming, you know, having you defend your thesis a little bit here, is, is Christian ministry the place for innovation? Um, or yeah. is it a place for a restoration? What, you know, Alex loves Latin a lot more than I do. But if we were to say <laughs> at Fontes, you know, I like go back to the source. I kind of tease him right. about that. Um, you know, yeah. is is that how how do you balance that tension? I know you deal with it in the book. I mean, because clearly there's some things that you don't want to see us innovate. But how do you balance that crisis of innovation with the need to that we should have to go back to what the apostles and Christ himself taught us? Yeah, well, so there is, I think, and maybe this is one reason why innovation doesn't happen in the church like it should. I think there is the fear that we're going to encourage innovation theologically that's inappropriate. And, you know, that obviously that has happened throughout history. But and this comes out in the book. When, when we're doing ministry, so businesses actually can innovate better and easier than ministries because their competition is other businesses, and that's a very concrete form of competition. But for us in ministry, we don't compete against other ministries. We compete against the world and its enticements. We compete against the culture and its, uh, you know, its innate... Uh, attractiveness to pull us away from Christ. Um, our competition isn't as concrete, but it's, it's very real. And I would say that uh, when we think about whether or not, I mean, you talk about the reformers, for example, many of the themes that, so I talked about the new, the new themes that Jesus introduced, but the concept of renewal, the concept of the born again language, all of that is certainly wrapped up in renewal in, in new ways of understanding and seeing what was already there. You know, when I talked earlier about how we talked about there's the unity of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, a lot of what Jesus did was he took what was already made manifest in the Old Testament that pointed to him, and right. he communicated it in a much more relevant way, in an innovative way to the culture in which he was 
uh, currently speaking and standing in. And so, you know, I mean, you could go, there's a theologian that talks about the double movement of Jesus. And I really love this idea. What he's talking about is Jesus did two things at the same time when he communicated his message. One thing he did is he said some things that were entirely anti-Jewish and very hard for Jews to swallow while saying it in a way that was entirely Jewish and easy for Jews to understand. And I think that that's part of the innovation challenge for us in the church. It's not to take, it's not to take the, the theology that comes from uh, the, the scriptures and innovate in a way that changes it, but it's to communicate it in a cultural context, in the places that we are and where we stand and speak into today, in a way that is one, prophetic and challenging, while still at the same time, really getting to the hearts of the people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from when you talk about, we've got to be a little careful with innovation. My biggest fear with innovation is actually more, not so much that we're going to be, wor- we need to be worried about innovation in a theological sense. I think uh, the fear we face is that we often will retreat into patterns and ways of talking about the gospel and relating the gospel that are, at this point, decades old. So there's, there's plenty of room for innovation around how we communicate that message. I, I want to dive deeper into that because that, that raises a, a lot of other questions there. There's obviously um, things that we could unpack there theologically or, or methodologies or methodologies, things that are given to us from scripture, or should we be continually innovating those as well? But before we dive too deep into that, I want people to understand the book a little bit more, too, because the book is not necessarily fixated on those types of issues that we're even talking about right now. You lay some of that foundation. Um, You make the case that Jesus was innovative in that sort of in that certain sense of the term that you just articulated. Right. He's he's introducing the new covenant. Right. It was always promised. It was always uh, there in types and shadows. But um, but you move beyond that, too, and you share lots of practical insights and lots of practical wisdom. Um, and you appeal to my soft spot as well, Scott's soft spot, which is talking about William Carey. And uh, and so you have his five shoemaker rules, um, obviously influenced by William Carey. Um, what are the five shoemaker rules and why those rules? Well, uh, you know, the, inc- the incredible thing about William Carey is, and, and this is hard for us as Americans to really wrap our minds around because we we live in a culture where there's lots of mobility you know you can be born i mean i'm i'm the i'm the son of a blue collar worker from a minneapolis suburb uh you know he never went to college uh very uh very awesome father very good father but here i stand with a phd and i have an educational level level that he was never able to acquire. In one generation, that kind of change happened. Well, in the British uh, environment that, that William Carey lived in, there was no uh, no mobility like that. You know, they they were if you were born a shoemaker, which he which you know William Carey was a shoemaker, you you might aspire to do some lay preaching. And he did, and he even was pretty radical in that he became a full-time preacher. But I'm telling you, that was a that was a really far bridge for him to take. 
And so the first thing I think we got to realize when we talk about William Carey, um, he, his ministry was launched from a position of uh, just really an immobile culture where he should never have had the opportunity to uh, move across the world and do things that he never did. You've probably heard of the phrase that he gave, uh, expect great things, attempt great things. Uh, you know, that, that really gets to uh, who he was and, and what he accomplished. And so, again, when we talk about William Carey, I think he is, uh, there's just, there's very few people like him. So he has, there's five things I observed about him. And these are the rules. I'll just throw them out there quick. See a problem worth solving is number one. In his case, it was this huge continent, all these people, nobody bringing the gospel to them. Number two, ride the wave of existing innovation. In William Carey's day, the British Empire, basically, they were flinging people out all across the world, and he rode on the back of that to get to India. Now, I know today that's not popular. We're worried about colonialism, yada, yada, yada. But just like most of you would not see yourselves as being driven by modernity, he did not see himself as driven by colonialism. So ride the wave of existing innovation is number two. Three, be biased to action. And, uh, you know, you have to act. This is one of the things I love about missionaries as opposed to missiologists. Now, I love missiologists. I got a degree in missiology. But um, missionaries got to actually do things. They actually got to act on theology. Right. And as soon as you take action, you're influencing a lot of things that you may not even be tending to influence in that context. But if you're going to be an innovator like William Carey, you've got to be biased to action. The fourth rule is to empathize, then strategize, is to understand the problem, the people, the thing that you're trying to innovate over. And again, William Carey is just such a great example of somebody who dove into the culture. Um, he didn't live in a cloistered setting. Uh, he, I could go on and on, but we have to, we have to really understand the people that we're trying to minister to. And then the final one is to think big. And uh, those, those five shoemaker rules are one way that we can frame innovation in our current ministry constructs as well. Even as we were, you know, discussing offline or through email, like there is something that definitely, you know, comes up and how much uh, Christian mission organizations don't seem to really define what they are trying to accomplish. And if we're not right. trying to define clearly what we're trying to accomplish, how often that leads to to innovations that really don't accomplish much or that leads to, to no, uh, to no innovation. And, uh, right, or your mission really statement will. is like, we want to make disciples. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and that was one of the beautiful things about William Carey. And I think we could probably nerd out about William Carey for the rest of our show, but you know, he, he had a very clear understanding of the problem, you know, and, uh, he obsessed about the problem and he, he definitely innovated in, in ways of not, I don't think he, I don't see William Carey innovating on the preaching of the gospel or of what uh, the Bible understanding of discipleship is, but he certainly innovated in, in even just his creation of the category of missiology, like, you know, the discussion of people groups and lostness and about parts of the world that need the gospel, you know, in new way, you know, in a, in a renewed effort. And then even in the ways he went about doing that, starting first as a, 
as a cobbler in his own town, but then how he he implemented all sorts of unique um, means that really, you know, we, we say they're unique because they were unique to that whole time period, but they really were things that the Apostle Paul was also modeling. And uh, and probably some of them are even things that Jesus Christ was modeling. So uh, I, I love I, I love the way you bring out so much of those of those great things about William Carey. As we look at the history of missions, we see examples like William Carey, and we see, you know, in the end, what looked like futility and even setbacks was roundly criticized. Even his own government uh, didn't want him to go into India. And yet at the end, we see at the end of his life, incredible success that's still reverberating today. I mean, we know people who were led to the Lord by people who were led to the Lord by people who were led to the Lord by William Carey, you know, that are in, our, in the church today. It's incredible. But also, as we look at innovation and missions history, you know, there's some massive failures. You know, I, I, I ministered in East Asia, and, and there's some incredible stories of, you know, innovations that turned into cults, and the cults led to revolutions, and the revolutions led to, you know, China shutting the door on ministry for, for generations. So, so sometimes there's ill-advised uh, innovation. So what would you say about um, this? mixed bag with innovations like how do we prevent uh innovating the wrong ideas how do we stay true to our calling and mission and not you know while not being afraid to try new things but also recognizing that sometimes innovation can get out of hand and cause more damage than it does good you know i don't I hope you understand what i'm trying to ask i understand where you're coming from i i mean i would not say that uh especially with uh mission agency leadership I'm not really seeing a ton of heresy come out of the North American missionary movement that's a part of Missio Nexus that would, you know, give me pause there. Um, I mean, failure is certainly part of innovation. I know that personally right now because I'm in the middle of unwinding an innovation that I brag about in the book, actually, that's gone south <laughs> since the book was published. You know, we started this... Uh, partially self-funded healthcare plan called Missio Benefits. And I talk about it in the book as a great innovative example of trying something new. Well, in the last four months, in part because of COVID, we've decided to shut that program down. It's been very painful and hard for everybody involved. So there's, there's no doubt that risk is a huge part of innovation. And if you, if you really, you know, if you want to... <laughs> If you, I mean, this year in Missio Nexus, we have a theme every year. All year long, it's been innovation. Next year, it's going to all be about safety. I'm sorry, mm. risk, risk taking, and safetyism. Mm. Because of where we're at in our culture right now, we're all risk averse. We're all worried about catching COVID and all the things we can do to keep it from happening. That kind of of attitude that you know, making sure that things are done right in the best way and without any potential of heresy, all that. That's probably stopped a lot of uh, powerful innovation from happening. So I would say, you know, our bigger danger isn't that we've got too much innovation going on in the world that creates heresy. I would say our bigger danger is that we don't communicate the gospel message well because we're too afraid of innovating. And, you know, I... I've just I've seen over and over again the... Uh, you, you, you walk in some of these cities of... 15, 20 million people and just a trickle of believers in them, it's going to take great risk-taking to see that situation turned around. 
Right. Um, so, you know, I would encourage people to take that risk of innovation and not not be as concerned about the, uh, the potential dangers. And there's certainly dangers there. <laughs> I've certainly felt them myself, even just now. Right. I, not sure I agree with all of that, because I, I, I do think that we've seen a lot of downgrade within evangelicalism. Look uh, all the way back to uh, someone like Charles Finney uh, and and his his new methods, right, were um, a source of a lot of things that, you know, d- did did the the visible Christian community grow as a result, um, potentially, right? What something was happening during the Second Great Awakening, so-called. Um, I'm not convinced it was a biblical revival. So I, I think that there is, um, you know, maybe an area here where where there would be some some friendly disagreement. But my question would be to you then: Okay, how do we evaluate? Uh, the faithfulness of innovation, because we we both believe that there are guardrails at some point, right? And that our goal is not only to innovate, but also to be faithful and to trust God with the results, right? So for you, Ted, what is the role of scripture and exegesis in forming the parameters around uh, what can be innovated? Um, You know, so uh, you, you mentioned, obviously, we're not trying to innovate theologically, yes, and amen to that. Um, but but what else does scripture, in your opinion, say we can innovate on? And then what are some of the areas that you would say are, are sort of, you know, locked down and, and are kind of just delivered to us uh, in scripture? Well, I mean, I think we have a, uh, I mean, we've got, we've got a rich theological trust to draw off of historically and biblically uh, that I think provides us with just a lot of direction about what's good and bad. Now, there are times when we get off base. I mean, I think, so let me give you a missiological issue where I think innovation was attempted to the detriment of the communication of the gospel. Mm. And that would be in that whole, in the whole arena of contextualization, where you had people saying and doing things to identify with the cultures that they were going to, which, you know, from my perspective, were associating them with sinful religions. And harmful religions. Um, that would be, to me, an example of uh, where we've gone too far and allowed people to go too far innovatively. But that said, um, be a little careful here. Uh, Hudson Taylor, he was a contextualizer. You sure. know, he wore the clothes of the people in his day. He grew his hair long and he was called a heretic for doing those two things. Now, we look at that and we say, well, that's not a biblical charge. Well, that's not what those people at that time said. They thought it was a biblical True. charge. True. Um, but even on contextualization, I, you know, we leave a lot on the table there um, that is ripe for innovation in a way that doesn't harm our witness by identifying us with other religions. You know, one example I would point to is, you know, when we talk about contextualization, it seems that we define that only by shaping the gospel message to fit the culture. But that, that should be turned upside down as well. We should be thinking about how to make those cultures adapt better to receiving the message of the gospel. And, and again, in our day and age, that's probably not popular because it sounds like we're trying to change culture. Uh, from my perspective, the biblical message would take precedence over that. But I give you a really good example of innovation in that space. Uh, Years ago, a team went to uh, Southeast Asia in the people group they were working in. Nobody knew a a single Christian from that culture 
And in fact, when they asked about Christians of that culture, they would say, well, that's not possible. There aren't any. So if you're starting from the standpoint that it's impossible for me as a person in this culture to become a Christian, you're a long ways off from the gospel. So the missionary team there said, let's change that perception in culture. And they began to highlight publicly the stories, conversion stories and the lifestyles of Christians that were good citizens living in that culture. And as a result, three and four years later, if you walked up to one of the people in that culture and you said, do you, do you know of any Christians from your culture? They would not say that's impossible. They would say, well, yeah, actually, I do know about that. And you can find them here if you're interested in learning more. And so there's great space to, to innovate when it comes to this issue of contextualization. Unfortunately, we tend to look at it just kind of through one lens. Mm. That that raises an interesting question, by the way. And again, there's a lot where we could dive in, but I'm really interested. You did say something in the book that struck me. Um, you, you you didn't call it this in so many words, uh, but you, you basically made a comment about reverse contextualization. Yeah. Uh, on, on page 195, uh, for those that might be following along, uh, unpack that for us because I think that is um, helpful. Yeah. Again, reverse contextualization is the, is the idea that. You know, if we're working in a place where there is no concept of somebody becoming a follower of Christ uh, and converting, then part of our task should be to address that cultural as- assumption, right? And call it into question. In fact, you know, a lot of what we do in our in our own cultural context is reverse contextualization, right? In other words, you're you're changing the culture to fit the gospel a little better, rather yes. than yeah. rather than modifying the way in which the gospel is delivered to fit the culture. You know, I think in some ways we've adopted a in, inappropriate and I would call it worldly view of culture. Mm. Culture is not uh, a sanctified entity. And, mm. um, you know, I love it's culture. Not, it's not worldview neutral. Yeah, it's not value it is neutral. Not, it is not. Right. And, Amen. And sometimes missionaries have been so beat up because they've been accused of cultural imperialism yeah. that they lose sight of the fact that there are things in that culture that are not redemptive, that are opposed to the mm-hmm. gospel, and that, I'm sorry, but, you know, we need to challenge them. Jesus did it in his day. You know, he, he took the leading cultural figures were the Pharisees, and he took them on. Um, now, you know, was he, was he changing their culture? Was he being inappropriate in, you know, challenging that Worldview, yeah, I think, you know, inappropriate, no, but he was challenging that worldview for sure. So, you know, and, and again, William Carey went into that culture. They were burning widows. And he said, hey, this has got to stop. This is wrong. And that becomes part of the gospel message, part of the redemptive message that people in those cultures can receive. So, you know, I, again, contextualization is fine, but we... N- we have historically limited it to trying to redefine the gospel into a culture. And that's only part of the equation. Mm. So Ted, as we're, as we're wrapping up, I just want to, you know, recommend a few things about the book as well. I, I don't want, I don't want anyone to get the impression that this, you know, was a, we were negative about it. So it's clearly as we go through the book, there's things that obviously anyone in missions will have an opinion on one thing or another. Everyone's got an opinion on church planting movements. Everyone has an opinion on translation philosophies and those kind of things. And you do bring out, of course, your opinion on lots of those things. But what I really do appreciate 
um, that I think is helpful for for people, especially missionaries, as they're thinking through the problems is identify, you know, going through those those rules, identifying some of the big things that we need to tackle. And then you do give some really helpful grids for evaluating the problems and then how to go about tackling those. And I love that every chapter ends with discussion questions and application questions. And so even if someone comes to a different position than you on one particular missiological issue or not, there's still a lot of value here because no matter where we're at in ministry and no matter what our philosophy or theological uh, background, there are going to be problems that we need to face that, that need uh, some careful and analytical discussion. And I think you do a great job of one highlighting resources that sometimes are outside of the minister's purview, some of the business uh, books and articles, but then also giving us some helpful frameworks in which we can go about tackling those those, you those know, let me, problems. If I could interrupt you for just a second, I would say yeah. this, book, this book is not a theology of innovation. I approach innovation um, as if it's theologically acceptable. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about writing another one on the theology of innovation at this point, because I think you should. Yeah. I I think we miss, uh, we miss out on how, I mean, one of the reasons why the first century church grew like it did is because it was unlike anything that people in that Roman world had ever seen or come into contact with before. Mm. And in so many ways, my lament for the church in the U S and, and I love the church, and I'm not trying to be a, a rock thrower here in, in any way. But we have struggled so hard to be relevant. And it might be that the church is going to become more relevant when we begin to call into question some of the things that are happening in our culture and not just feel like we have to adopt and adapt to the latest pop culture trends that come along that, right. that keep us kind of cool. Right, which will always and, be 10 to 15 years behind on anyway. Yeah, yeah, and which, yeah right. which we do a poor job of. Very. <laughs> anyway, yeah, you're right. Um, so anyway, I, I do think that there is uh, a lot more to be said on the theology of innovation. But the, the book, you, when you talk about the, it's a pragmatic book more than it is a, a theology book. You're right about that. And I, and I appreciate uh, all those things that you put out there for us to be able to learn from. So how can people find out more about you, Ted? How can they find your book? How can they interact with you and Missio Nexus? Well, of course, we got a website, missionexus.org. Um, love to you jump on there. If you want to write to me directly, there's a contact form. And I get them in about uh, 30 seconds after you hit enter on that form. I'll get it. And your love letters to Ted. Um, the book obviously is on Amazon and other places where you can find that. We do a lot of events. Um, I'll, I'll give you guys some information that'll come out next week. Ooh. So I don't know when this podcast will actually hit hit the airwaves, but next week we're going to be announcing uh, the National Church Mission Leaders Conference. And so this is going to be, as far as we know, the only National Mission Pastor Conference. Hmm. Uh, we'll be launching in 2022. It's going to launch alongside the conference that we're currently doing for mission leaders. And we're hopefully going to cross-pollinate mission pastors with mission agency leaders by co-leading a dual conference. Mm. Excellent. I'm all for leaning into the local church. Yeah, I, great idea. And I, I would say too, um, I, I derived a lot of benefit from the book just just thinking of it from the standpoint of how how large parachurch organizations, in particular, uh, you you do just get stuck in your ways. You can have 
um, entrenched patterns and and interests and and habits that lead to um, drift, right? And and all of these sorts of things um, that that take us off mission. And uh, something to to sort of shake awake the parachurch world a little bit, and and to realize uh, you don't have a right to exist. You only exist to the degree that you're actually moving the ball and the mission forward, because the local church is God's plan A. And so to say to parachurch organizations, uh, keep up, right, and 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 keep doing radical new work. And so it, it was particularly helpful from that standpoint. So we do recommend it. And uh, innovationcrisis.com, theinnovationcrisis.com. Yeah, theinnovationcrisis.com. And uh, there's a fun little survey that's there you can take. It'll tell you how innovative you are, in what areas you're most innovative and not innovative. So, yep, that's out there too. The Theinnovationcrisis.com. Ted Esler, president of Missio Nexus. Thanks for joining us today, Ted. Appreciate the friendly back and forth. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com. Subscribe on your app of choice. And while you're doing that, remember to leave a positive rating and a five-star rating and review for us. That'll help us get this content in front of other people who could be blessed by it. Questions and suggestions to alex at missionspodcast.com. Support missionspodcast.com slash support. Until next week, thank you for listening.